My name's David Blouse, and uh, I'm going to be opening God's Word for us this morning. Won't you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask as we spend this time now considering what it is that you have to tell us, we ask that you would shape us to be the people you want us to be, to be good ambassadors. Uh, Father, help us to live, to please you, to live uh, knowing what the future holds, and so to be focused, determined, and committed to that which matters. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I feel like I'm a little bit too loud, Gav. I can hear myself booming in my own ears. I want to be booming in your ears, not mine. Uh, our verse, our chapter, our passage today begins with these words. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. You will find it very helpful, by the way, to have a Bible handy. Begins with these words in verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Now, in one sense, today's sermon is just that. It's the implications of what it means to fear the Lord. Uh, it's a sermon that's just implications. We're just doing the last bit of most sermons. And I've got to warn you, this is one of those Bible passages that is very hard to walk away from unchanged. If you find yourself leaving church later on and you're like, oh, well, that was a nice sermon, wasn't it? I wonder what's for lunch. If that's your thought process, then perhaps you weren't listening. It's one of those passages that turns everything upside down. Now, it's the conclusion of what we've seen, at least in the last couple of chapters, if not in the book so far. Uh, you might remember two weeks ago that we spoke about Christians living for that which is eternal. If you look back up to chapter 4 and verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. We, our eyes are fixed forward on that which will endure into eternity. So then last week, Joe reminded us that we endure, we put up with what is part of this life because it is temporary. What is earthly will pass. It's like a tent. You can live in a tent for a little while because you're looking forward to the home that is heaven. We live for the eternal. And so we read that we walk by faith. That is, Christians live with their eyes set on the future, confident in God's promises. If you live by sight, you are looking backwards. You're looking at the things you can see. Your bank account balance, your house, your education, your whatever, whatever it is. Something you can see, something that is tangible. Whereas we live by faith, looking forward, relying on the promises of God. With the goal we saw at the end of last week in chapter 5 and verse 10... Sorry, chapter 5 and verse 9, we make it our goal to please him. The aim of the Christian life is very simple, please God. Have you ever stopped to think about that concept? Please God. What does it mean? What does it even look like? How do we go about pleasing God? At what point is God going to be pleased with us? Well, the end of last week, the reason why we set out to please God and when we will know if we have or if we haven't, that Joe very conveniently skipped, thanks mate, was uh, chapter 5 and verse 10. For we make it our goal to please God because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You and I are going to face judgment. Now, it's not judgment for salvation. That has already been won. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin dealt with, righteousness given to us. No, but it is judgment of our works. That is, there is reward for the Christian who has lived Christ's way. How you live matters. I'll say that again. How you live matters. In 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the picture of a fire coming through. And uh, the stubble is just burnt up. We're well familiar with that, aren't we? We, Bushfires, we know what fire does to dry grass. But that which is gold, that which is made to last, will endure and in fact will be rewarded. It doesn't matter quite so much what the rewards are. We'll talk about that in a moment, but it doesn't matter too much. The point is your actions as a Christian matter. You will be held accountable for how you've lived. We're not saved so that we can live a nice life. If you thought to yourself, well, I'm a Christian now, hooray, I've got Jesus and it's all going to be plain sailing and it's just, woo, it's going to be roses from now on. I'm going to have a great old time as a Christian. Well, you've kind of missed the point. We are saved that we might be fruitful, that we might be useful for God's kingdom. Just picture it for a moment. That day Jesus returns and the, the movie reel of your life is being played before everybody. Every thought, every action, every decision. And God looks at you and says, what have you been doing with the life that I gave you? What God thinks of us really, really matters. What we do as a response to the salvation he has won for us matters. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Well, what do we do? I've got four implications for you from today's passage. Four implications of those who know what it is to fear the Lord. Firstly, it's right there in verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. We we, we set out to convince people of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in one sentence, Paul has given us the reason for evangelism, the reason for telling others about Jesus. I hope that you are evangelizing in your life. It's a big word. All it means is you're telling other people about what Jesus has done, what he has done for you, what he has done for them. I I hope that this is your motivation, your desire to please God, knowing that all you are and all you have done will be revealed on the last day. I hope that that's the reason for it. Uh, Certainly, I hope that it's not... You don't evangelize just because we make you do it. Ah, it's turn two again. David's banging on about evangelism. There's events. I better invite someone. Ah, whatever. He'll yell at me if I don't, right? I, I hope that that's not why you evangelize. But it's because you want to please God and you will be called to account for your actions. It's why Paul was so committed to gospel work. Have a look at what he says to them, right? As he's setting out his heart. Again, the second half of verse 11, what we are is plain to God and plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves. I'm not boasting, right? I'm not just trying to big note myself in telling you why I am committed to gospel work. But we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Why is it that Paul is so committed to sharing of Jesus? Because of what's in his heart. He's not doing it for personal gain. 
Well, let's just get that very clear, in case you haven't noticed yet, in the midst of all of his suffering and poverty and just the bad stuff that's happened to him. In fact, I think it's disgusting when ministers are clearly in it for profit. It's absolutely despicable when you see people who are peddling the word of God for the sake of their own gain. It's the sort of people that I ask God to strike them down. I mean, what are they doing? I saw just this last week a lady called Paula White. If you're not familiar with her, it doesn't matter at all, right? But this was the promise that she made, a prominent American televangelism. She promised defeat over your enemies. Now, if you don't have enemies, that's okay. You can use this promise for defeat over your financial situation, over your health, over whatever it might be. All you have to do, can you take a guess? Is send me $229. Let's just be very specific here for a moment. Because she had a word from God from 1 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 9. So therefore it has to be $229. And if you send me the $229, you will receive this victory. It's saddening, isn't it? Now, she's received her reward. She, she's, she'll get her 200. I'm sure she will get thousands of dollars. There will be people who will send her the $229. But that's all she will receive. For before God, that is useless. No, rather, Paul himself, he's not saying we're in it for the money. We're not in it for ourselves. We're not in it for the externals and the show. No, Paul was motivated by love, not by greed. Have a look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He's compelled. Very powerful word, isn't it? Compelled. It's the sort of a, you've got a gun to your head, now you must act kind of thing. Except this is even greater than that. It's not a gun to your head. It's, it's God's love gripping your heart that you can't do anything but act. And notice what compels him, Christ's love, being convinced of it. It's, it's an understanding word. It's a brain word. It's a knowledge word. Do you know that Jesus died in your place? Do you believe that because he died, you're dead? That's it. All you is gone. Who you are, what you have, what you desire, what you want, what you... It, dead. Such that as he has come back to life and brought you back to life, you now live for him. Are you convinced of that? That is what compelled Paul. Now you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, what I would really like is to have this moment of heartfelt, deep, transforming passion that just kind of shakes me and grabs me and, whoa, I have to go and do it now. Maybe you'll have that moment, but you know what? Maybe you won't. What compelled Paul was being convinced of the truth. Don't sit there waiting. Do you believe it? Are you convinced of that truth? Is this what compels you? You live for Jesus. I live for Jesus. I preached this sermon, a sermon on this passage earlier this year, uh, you may remember. And uh, one of the applications was talking about tattoos. 
Now, um, we, we've often talked about tattoos. Uh, I believe it's a conversation of, uh, a topic of conversation right now for a couple of our young adults. Is that right? Anyway, uh, and I said, look, tattoos, they're a bit whatever. But if you came to church one week with I live for Jesus tattooed across your forehead, I don't know that I could complain. I'll have a chat with Jared later. We'll... Someone, someone from another congregation um, took that to heart. Uh, they didn't tattoo themselves on the forehead. They, they, they wrote it on a little piece of, just big piece of paper and just stuck it on their desk at work. I live for Jesus. There's been a bunch of people since gone by and gone, huh, huh, I live for Jesus. Who'd say that? She goes, well, I do. Oh, mm. Had a conversation off the back of it. Is that true of you? Could you honestly look at your life and say, I live for Jesus. I died to myself and I'm alive to him. What he wants. We know the fear of the Lord. And so firstly, we seek to persuade men. We seek to convince them of what Jesus has done for us and does for them. Secondly, we see people differently. We see people differently. Verse 16. So from now on then we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. If you know the fear of the Lord, then you know that there's only two ways that you can see a person. They are either in Christ or they're not. That's it. Unfortunately, in our society, in our culture, we we often see people in one of two ways, but in a bad way. We either see them as our people or not our people. Now, it can be all sorts of different ways, right? You, You might be afraid of people from other cultures. They're different. They're not like us. They do different things to me. People from other religions, right? I, unfortunately, know Christians who will often talk about, oh, the Muslims are coming. They're coming. And they're afraid because of it. Maybe other socioeconomic, maybe people who are poor or people who are rich, whatever it is that your problem you have. Maybe it's those who are criminals. Maybe it's beggars. We can be afraid of people for all sorts of reasons. Maybe you're just afraid of lawyers. I don't know whatever it is that you're afraid of. Bankers. You know what? It doesn't matter who they are. It really doesn't matter. If anything, we ought to be rejoicing that these are the people around us. Because we get to share Jesus with them. Oh no, they're going to come and take our jobs. Brilliant! Because it means they'll be my neighbour. And God has brought them from the farthest point of the world to live next to me. And I can tell them about Jesus. It does not matter in the slightest where someone has come from. It's irrelevant. What matters is where they are going for eternity. That's what matters. Do you see the people you engage with as the person who needs to be reconciled with God? It's a a popular word, reconciliation, isn't it? I mean, it gets used in our in our society, in the context of kind of the Aboriginal history, but reconciliation is a Christian word. It's, it's a Christian idea. It is what we as ambassadors are proclaiming. Look down at the second half of verse 20. 
This, this is what Paul is doing as he sees people that need to be reconciled. We implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And how is it that that happens? Do you want a definition of reconciliation? Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Notice not to be a sinner. God didn't make Jesus a sinner. No, he made him sin. He took our sin and placed it upon him that as our substitute and our representative, he might die our death such that God would not count our sin against us. That's pretty good reconciliation, isn't it? In fact, it gets even better in God's case because what does he do? In him we might become the righteousness of God. Here is reconciliation. God looks at me, and this might surprise you, God looks at me and he says, oh, you look like Jesus. It's not the beard, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Nor my olive skin. It's the righteousness of God. It's Jesus' righteousness which is given me as my sin is placed upon him. Did you know when God looks at you, if you are a reconciled child of God, and do you know what he sees when he looks at you? He says, man, you look like Jesus. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. It's not like our human reconciliation. That's always imperfect. There's always a little memory of the wrong done. There's always a little edge to the relationship. God looks at us and sees perfectly white, pure, cleansed. Sin done away with. Is that how you see people? As either somebody who is still bearing their own sin and will face the wrath of God on the judgment day or somebody for whom Jesus has died whose sin is paid for and is now the very righteousness of God. All right, just, just play a little montage for a moment in your head. The people you're going to see tomorrow. Oh, you wake up in the morning, maybe you'll wake up next to someone. Hopefully your spouse. <laughs> but possibly your children, I guess, actually, maybe. How are you going to see them? Oh, you dirty little... Right, that's your spouse. And uh, the children, are, no. In Christ, out of Christ. You walk out the door, your neighbour's standing there. Hey, how are you? The postman wanders by. The taxi driver, the bus driver. You drop your kids off at school, the other parents. You go to the shops, the checkout chick. You go to work, your colleagues. How are you going to see them? Are they just tired, grumpy so-and-sos? Or are they in Christ or out of Christ? You need to stop being blind. There are two blindnesses in particular that afflict us. The first blindness is the one where we think everyone's okay. You look out, you see nice people. They're nice people. They're all right. They're okay. They don't really need the gospel of Jesus. That's not true. Without Jesus, they're going to hell. The other blindness is that we look at people and we dislike them. They're not like me. They're not my sort. I couldn't possibly go and speak to them. Ah, oh, no. They're... Imagine them coming to church. Ooh, please, no. Stop being blind. Because we want to please God. We need to see them how he sees them. In Christ or out of Christ. 
We seek to persuade. We see people differently. Thirdly, we implore as ambassadors. Look down at verse 18. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's useless to have a message if no one speaks it. Yeah, do you remember amnesties? You ever lived through an amnesty? You can, have, you can have different kinds of amnesties, right? Perhaps our famous ones are gun amnesties, where the cops say, well, look, for the next week, we're not going to ask questions. Just bring it in. That's it. We're not going to ask where you got that rocket launcher from. Just bring it in. We're not going to ask where the AK-47 was found with the 3,000 rounds of ammunition, right? Just bring it. A hundred guns were stolen from a gun store last week in WA, right? It's that moment where you're like, we're not going to ask. Just bring them in, right? How pointless would an amnesty be if no one knew? Yes, yes, we're going to accept any weapon, no questions asked, but we're not going to tell anyone. (laughs) What's the point? Jesus has died for sin. He suffered at the hands of men. He's been raised to new life. Oh, let's not tell anyone. Let's, let's just, just, that's just between Jesus and God. No one else needs to know that, right? No. In fact, in Luke 24, there's just this amazing few verses. Jesus says, right, according to Scripture, this is what must happen. The Son of Man must die. Sorry, must suffer. The Son of Man must three days later be raised again. And then repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached from Jerusalem out into the world. It's a thing that must happen. The ambassadors going forth to proclaim. World evangelism is as essential to God's plan as Jesus' death and resurrection. That's an amazing thought that we get to participate in. We implore on Christ's behalf. This is normal Christianity. Be reconciled to God. And so fourthly, our fourth implication is that we have to live in this day. 24th of November, 2019 AD. Have a look at chapter 6 and verse 1. As God's fellow workers... We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you, I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. What a scary thought. To receive God's grace in vain. I take it they're saved. They are those who have received God's grace. But they did nothing with it. Live for Christ? Ah! Remember, all will be exposed at that last judgment. There will be reward for those who have lived Christ's ways. 
for those who have been good ambassadors. You are going to be an ambassador. If you are a Christian, you are an ambassador. This isn't an optional. I'm not telling you something new. You are an ambassador. You will either be a good one or a bad one. That's the decision you have to make. I, I liked in the kids' talk that, uh, that we clapped Joe. It was good. Excellent illustration. Right? The reward for being a good ambassador. I mean, in this case, it was praise from men, so we're not after that. Um, but today is the amnesty. Today is the day of salvation. T- today. There have been some really remarkable moments in history. In God's plan. Can you imagine for a moment having been there as Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac and an angel stopped him? Can you imagine being there at the burning bush as God speaks to Moses and calls him? Can you imagine being in the multitudes of Israel as they leave Egypt and go through Moses, parts the Red Sea and you walk through? That would have been some amazing moments to live through. Imagine being there when Solomon built the temple, the splendor of Israel, the glory of this king, that the whole world came. It would have been amazing to be there. Imagine living through the earthly ministry of Jesus, to be there as he taught, as he fed the multitudes. I've often wondered about that one. Was the food any good? The the three fishes and the 12 loaves? Was it like, that is amazing and I want more? Imagine being there. As Jesus was resurrected and sent his disciples out into the world. I mean, aren't those just amazing moments in the history of the world? Do you know what? We're living in one of them right now. We are living in a moment that the prophet Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, could only dream of. He wanted to live in the moment we are living He yearned for this day of salvation where the gospel would go out, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. He was a man. I wish I could be there. You ever heard that saying, you should should have been here yesterday? Man, you you should have been here yesterday, man. It, it, It just means yesterday was really good. Today, not so good. Yesterday was amazing. You really should have been here yesterday. Today is yesterday. Today is the day. Man, you really should have been there yesterday. You know what? I was. It's now. Now is the moment. All of time has led up to this day. For this is the day of salvation. And, and we waste it. We spend our time arguing and complaining about decaf coffee, for crying out loud. Who cares? That's the sort of thing we waste our time on. When today is the day of salvation. I'll tell you, this is a passage addressed well and truly to those who are reconciled already. But just for a moment, I want to speak to you if you're not reconciled. But if you're still somebody who's bearing their own sin, you need to understand that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for you. He, he bore it that you might come and be reconciled, that you might become the very righteousness of God. You need to deal with that if you're not ready yet. But for those of us who have already been reconciled, for those of us who do now look to eternal things, who do live to please God, for those of us who know the fear of the Lord, what are you doing? Could you honestly say that your life is determined, you are are hell-bent 
or heaven bent is perhaps a better way of saying it, on seeking to persuade others. That you see them through this lens of in Christ or not in Christ. Have you been reconciled? Then take the message to others. Please don't receive God's grace in vain. Knowing that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. How good is that day going to be? I mean, you're there, it's judgment day, it's all happening, and you see your children walk in the door. And you're like, yes. Your grandchildren walk in the door. Yes. Your neighbour enters into heaven. Your work colleague, your classmate, a person that you've never even met before, but somehow you know that as you were praying for your missionary, they were converted. And here they are. How good is that? Your scripture student, man, you saw them 53 years ago. Here they are. Your small group member that you haven't stopped praying for. How good a reward is that? When we face that day when all will be revealed. Today is the day of salvation. Now I want to finish with one just tiny little practical thing that I reckon you can have a crack at tomorrow. Off the back of a conversation at Bible study this week, someone said to me, we're talking about who you're evangelizing. He said, well, I was at work the other day and, uh, and they asked me the question. You know the question you get on Monday? It's the question you're going to get tomorrow, right? But you know what the question I'm talking about? All right, it'll be one of two. How was your weekend or what did you do on the weekend? Right, either way. And he very helpfully answered, I went to church. And the other person said, oh, cool. And that was it. Conversation over. And it got me thinking, well, surely we can do better than that. Here's my challenge. I want you to do it today, and I think you should just get into regular habit of it. This should be every week, because you know the question's coming on Monday. Why not work out now, what are you going to say tomorrow? That's going to prompt a conversation. I mean, could, right? How was your weekend? Oh, good, I went to church. Oh, right, good. Look, you're done, right? How about, um, what did you do on the weekend? Oh, man, yeah, it was cool. I went to church, and um, you know the Bible says Christians are going to face judgment too? Like not, not heaven-hell judgment, because heaven's guaranteed, but like what we do really matters. That's really got me thinking. I, I, what's going to happen next? I don't know. Maybe they'll look at you like you're a freak. That's entirely possible. But it's better than, oh yeah, whatever, church. Now why not next week, the same thing, right? Right about now in the sermon, we, we've got two minutes left to go, so right about now in the sermon, why not start thinking, what am I going to say tomorrow? What's the thing that I'm going to bring up? How am I going to say something other than I went to church? Tiny little thing, but a habit we would do well to get into. And all because we want to live to please God. We want to do what pleases Him, such that on that last day our labour has not been in vain. We haven't received God's grace in vain. Because now is the time of God's salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you humbled. We come before you being reminded of our own weakness, of our own lacks, 
of our own flaws. We come before you reminded of our own sin. But you are greater than our sin. For we come reminded of the Lord Jesus in his death, becoming sin for us. That we might now live as those who are perceived by you as having your very own righteousness. Father, thank you that you have done all that is needed for our salvation. Our eternity is guaranteed. And so, Father, teach us to begin now to live to please you and not ourselves. Make us good ambassadors that we might see those who are in need of the gospel and be fearless in proclaiming it to them. Father, we yearn for that judgment day to see those around us saved, to see them in heaven with us. And so would you give us now the urgency, now in this day of salvation, to go and implore them, be reconciled to God. Amen.